Turn, please, to Acts in chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, please. I want to begin reading with verse 6 and finish with verse 11, Acts chapter 1. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord... We you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, 
and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, they were looking on. As they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were going into heaven and while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come into will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Christ has come, yet Christ is coming again. You see, at the ascension of Jesus, and even at the coming of the Holy Spirit, we see great evidence of this new covenant. We see people's lives changing. Uh, we see um, people coming to know God through Jesus Christ, to know their sins forgiven, to believe and to know and to live out the very fact that they've been adopted by Him. But yet we still see evidence of sin everywhere. It certainly isn't eradicated. I mean, while on earth Jesus could touch the eyes of the blind, um, the ears of the deaf, and they could see and hear and all of that, but yet still remains people who are blind and deaf, not only physically, but spiritually. Uh, we see evidence of sin in the fact that there isn't peace on earth. The promise of the Messiah is that there wouldn't be war anymore. The promise of the Messiah was there would be no more poverty. There would be no more injustice. There wouldn't be any death. And yet still people die. And yet still there is war. And yet still there's injustice. And still there's, there's poverty. And so there's something yet still to do. There's something still to happen. It didn't all come to fruition and consummation at that very point. I empathize very much with, with the question that the disciples asked Jesus. This is a point after his resurrection, obviously. Uh, he's right ready to ascend. I don't know that they quite know that, but he knows that. He's ready to ascend. And so they ask in verse 6, uh, uh, um, they said, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? In other words, is it over? Is this the time of, of great restoration? Now, they had probably a, a bit of a wrong view on what restoration really meant, an over-fixation on Israel as a political entity and all of that. Israel had played its primary role in the history of redemption by birthing Jesus as a child of Abraham, who would bless all the nations, all the uh, nations of the earth. But still, that question very very valid to me. It resonates. The Messiah came. Isn't it done? Isn't, shouldn't we see all these things happen? Um, and then Jesus, of course, Jesus ascends. Uh, Jesus had told them from time to time that there would be this sort of um, time period between his first coming when he inaugurates all of this kingdom of his and this second coming when he brings it to consummation. Uh, in, a, in a quite a negative way, he speaks to them like this. He says, be very careful, beware, because during this time period, false Christ will arise, so trust only in me. During this time period, wars are going to happen and rumors of war will take place. There'll be turmoil throughout all of the earth. Just understand, that's what's going to happen before I return. That's going to be, be the norm. You're going to see that in the face of the earth. And certainly that's played out. There have been false Christ. There have been wars and rumors of wars ever since the ascension of Jesus. And we anticipate that that will be true uh, up until the time that he returns and puts an end to all of that finally. 
He says to the Christians, uh, beware, because tribulation will befall you. You're not going to be immune to the difficulties of life. You're going to be struggling through them with me, but, but you'll have the effects of them. Earthquakes will happen, and when earthquakes happen, they'll hit all kinds of peoples, Christians included. And he didn't include tornadoes and hurricanes and landslides and mudslides and uh, all of those other kinds of things that take place. But in that whole purview, these things will take place. So don't be surprised. When you see these kinds of things, don't be surprised when persecution and tribulation comes upon you, even from outside. This is going to happen and in a more positive way. Jesus would tell them by way of parable that there would be this delay. It would be this first coming and this second coming also. Uh, he, he, he put it often like this. He says, let's say that there is a master and uh, he leaves his servants in charge and he goes away and then after a time, he returns. What should he find his servant doing? Oh, he should be about his master's business. And in fact, he should be so much about his master's business that his master would find him faithful. So faithful that he would turn to his servant and say, Ah, my good and faithful servant, you've been faithful in these little things. I will make you, I will make you responsible over much. Come now and enjoy the joy of your master's presence. Yeah, that's the way it should be, you see, during that, that time delay. Because, you see, all of history uh, is bound up in Jesus. All of human history is bound up in Jesus. The way the Apostle Paul puts it in, in Ephesians in chapter 1 is like this. For instance, in Ephesians 1, verse 7, he writes, In him that is in Jesus we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, verse 10, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So you see, time is filling up again. You see, it's filled up. To the coming of Jesus so that he would be born. And now he ascends and sends his spirit. And in sending his spirit, he, he, he brings the new covenant to people. And he forms an entity like the church. And he's filling up time again. Until everything could be brought together in Christ. Jesus is the focal point of all history. He was the focal point up until the time he came. Everything was getting ready, prepared for him. He's now the focal point from this point on, everything being prepared for his second coming. And when he comes again, of course, he'll be the focal point, visibly, before everyone at that point in time. Um, he's coming back. Uh, the way the Apostle Paul puts it, for instance, in 1 Thessalonians, and chapter 4 uh, is like this. If you've got a Bible, 1 Thessalonians is with the T's. 1 Thessalonians and Timothy and Titus in the New Testament. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16, we read this. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air so that we will always be with the Lord. Uh, therefore, encourage one another with these words. 
Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need uh, to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. When people, while people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and, there will be, and, they, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. You see, it's interesting. The first and foremost, when Jesus comes back, it's not going to be a secret. It will there'll be a big trumpet sound. So it isn't, it's not going to be a secret. Everyone will know when he comes back. We don't have to be worrying about that. Everybody says, yes, Jesus is back. The dead in Christ, that is those who have died previous to his coming, uh, will rise and meet uh, all those who are alive, Christians who are alive at his coming, all together. Okay? That really is the rapture. It comes when Jesus returns. We all kind of hook up. There we are. That's it. He's back. Everybody knows it. It's loud and clear. The difference between believers and unbelievers at that moment in time is that to unbelievers, it's going to be a utter shock. Like a thief in the night. Because they won't have been anticipating it at all, because they don't really believe that he came in the first place as who he is, and therefore they're not really believing he's going to come in the second place either. And so they're going to be shocked by all of this. And while you and I might be surprised in the sense that we don't know the day or the hour when the trumpet blasts and when Jesus comes, we're going to say it's Jesus. Right? It's not like a thief that we don't know. It's not like a thief that we didn't expect. It's not like a thief that we've been preparing against. It's Jesus who we've been expecting all this time. And he's going to come. And then you see when he comes, he will bring in, in its fullness, everything promised. You see, we have glimpses now of all of this. We have, we have glimpses of what it means to be inclined towards him. But we all know that that inclination isn't perfect. We have inclinations from time to time of what it is to see him come and bring perfect health into a body that's diseased. But we know that doesn't happen all the time. In fact, so far our experience has been that it doesn't happen at least once for everybody. Right? That's just the way it is. We all, we all die. Uh, we know a certain measure of peace and harmony relationally as we come to faith in Christ, as we learn how to forgive, and we learn how to speak well of each other, and we learn how to live together, and all of that. But we, but we know that's not yet quite perfect. You, you know that even as you sit here, even maybe with people on your row, you may have to go to today and say, okay, I'm sorry. Yeah. You know that it's not quite yet perfect here. We know a sense of God's kingdom in, 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 in the, the coming of together of churches and the church of Jesus Christ as we work together and love together and serve together and all of that. We see the kingdom coming. We see people giving thanks to God for various things that, that we bring them. We see new life and all of that. Because we know that it's not perfect, but we know a day will come when it will be. Turn to Revelation in chapter 20. Verse 11. The Apostle John sees this after the return of Jesus. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it from uh, his present 
from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Implied through all those who, whose, name, whose names were found in the book of life, they were given eternal life with God. Verse 21, chapter 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. As Isaiah put it, sorrow and sighing will in fact flee away. They'll just be gone at that point. Then, verse 22 of chapter 21. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, there will be no more night. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything cursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. And, and night will be no more. They will need no lights of lamp or sun for the Lord. God will be their lights and they will reign forever and ever. That you see is coming. And people ask me quite often, why doesn't God give us a better description of what glory is going to be like? I mean, if that's to be our hope, if we're to be thinking about that, why doesn't he tell us more explicitly what it's going to really be like there? And, of course, the easy answer is to say something like, well, we probably don't have a category in our brain in order to understand what that's really going to be like. Just try to ponder yourself with a perfect body sinless. Or, more importantly, ask your wife to think about you that way or your husband to think about you that way. They go, I don't, I don't think I could describe that exactly. But maybe he does. Because you see, what gets the greatest description in all of the scripture is Jesus. You see, we keep wondering what the environment of heaven will be like. And God keeps telling us about the person we'll encounter there. That Jesus said, I'm telling you these things so that you can be with me. So that you can see my glory. You want to know what heaven's going to be like? You want to know what the new earth is going to be like? It's going to be like Jesus. 
when each of my kids has, has gone off to college and we visited them for the first time, I've often said to my wife, I wonder what their dorm room looks like. And Karen has, it's never a surprise to her. She knows exactly what it's going to look like. Because she knows these children. And she goes, I know what the environment's going to be like because I know them. As we know Jesus, we'll know exactly what the environment of glory will be like. Won't it be filled with peace? Won't it be filled with gentleness? Won't it be filled with kindness? Won't it be filled with goodness? Won't it be filled with healing? Won't it be filled with prosperity? Won't it be filled with health? Won't it be filled with forgiveness? Won't it be filled with grace? Now, I don't know what a tree looks like in that environment, but I don't really care. Right? It's all going to reflect Him. You see, a perfect body and perfect health and perfect peace and perfect everything doesn't mean anything at all if Jesus isn't there. Because first, it can't be there without Him. And second, if it is, it will still be so short of what it could be. You want to know what it's going to be like Spend your days now knowing Jesus. Let me ask you to stand to sing. Let's sing this <clears throat> song. Uh, we shall dance.
2 Corinthians, please, in chapter 9, verse 15. 2 Corinthians, chapter 9, and verse 15, please. One sentence. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. That sentence should be, I think, on the lips of, of every Christian. It really must be, not... Must in the sense of duty, that is, if you don't say it, you won't be blessed. But must in the sense of we understand uh, what Christ has done, it will be on our lips. How can we not say thanks be to God for his indescribable gift? Think about what we have in and because of Christ. The Bible uses various terms. He says that we're, we're justified, which means that God accepts us in Christ just as if we've never sinned, just as if we've always obeyed. We're justified. We're pardoned. Uh, the, the, the guts of the gospel, as you know, I never tire of thinking about, is the very fact that Jesus, for us, has taken on himself our sin. It's penalty that he would pay it. It's power that he would break it. He cancels our sin so that we can be accepted by God. We're justified and, and, and he, he, we're pardoned and then he gives to us his righteousness so that we're just as if we've never sinned, just as if we've always obeyed. That's how accepted we are by God. He has no case against us because of what Christ has done. If we can get around that and, and get our hearts into that and that into our hearts, it transforms our lives. I'm growing into that all the time. I never stop thinking about what that really means because there's things in me that, 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 that tell me I'm not really accepted by God when I sin, that He really doesn't accept me and all those kinds of things. And I have to remind myself to go back to the Gospel that I'm forgiven that he remembers my sin no more, that I'm as accepted by God in Christ as Christ is. Because he's forgiven my sins all, and he's given me his righteousness all, that I stand before him. It's amazing. We're justified. We're adopted by him, meaning that we're not simply forgiven our sins and set free and all of that, but he, we're taken into his family, into the very family of God. He says, I'm your father. Thus, he cares for us as a father cares. And you might think, well, my father didn't care very well. Well, that's your negative example. Your father will care for you in all the ways your heavenly father will care for you in ways your earthly father perhaps didn't. I hope my kids... Don't think that God cares for them the way that I did. I hope they bump up a whole lot and say, you know, I hope they say, I make them say, my dad was pretty good. <laughs> it's part of our catechism. Who loves you? You do. Da, 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 da. You know, all that stuff. I'm not, a, I'm not beyond that. Trust me. Um, 
But I hope they know the difference between me as a father and God as a father. I hope they know, and they do know my flaws. I hope they know that every place I've erred, God would never err. That Father doesn't, isn't defined by my life. It's defined by God himself. And he's the perfect, caring one. When he adopts us into, our, into his family, he becomes, is our father. And he cares for us like the perfect father would care by providing exactly what's needed, exactly when it's needed. By giving the discipline that's needed, always lovingly, but always the right discipline and always at the right moment. And often that we wouldn't understand as children, but still, he's our father. We trust him in all of that. We have access to him. We can pray in the name of Jesus and he hears us. Isn't it amazing? I don't know if you ever contemplate the very fact that there are people who might live next door to you who won't listen to you or answer their door or answer their phone or call you back or email you back. But God, the very creator of the universe, listens to us and hears us honestly. It's just amazing to think about. So we're justified, we're adopted, we're being sanctified, which means this very thing of sin, which is insidious and miserable and, and is out to destroy us and to kill us. God is out to destroy it in our lives. And so he's working all the time to get sin out of us so that we can know the joy of knowing him and walking with him and his goodness and all that. He won't leave us alone We're in this process of, of sanctification. He's given us great purpose in life, individually and collectively, as the church of Jesus Christ. Uh, it is through us that, that, that the kingdom of God, in a sense, expands and grows and goes out as we love as he's loved. As we bring the gospel and people's lives are transformed because they hear it and believe. As we pray, all of this you see, that's the purpose of our lives. No matter where you find yourself or whatever physical condition, whatever economic condition, you know that your purpose is to glorify him at that moment, to love as he's loved. And in so doing, you're doing exactly that for which human beings were created in the first place. It is being restored in you all that was lost. We're going to be glorified that as a day will come when we will have bodies that are imperishable and we will live forever in, in perfect bliss in the very presence of Jesus, knowing him and all of that, all of those things that we have in him. And, and what makes us grateful for all of that is not simply that that meets a need for us. I mean, it certainly does. That's what we need. But more than that, see, gratefulness is not measured simply by how happy we are when we get what we want or how happy we are when we get what we think we need. But gratefulness, you see, grows when we realize that what we've received is the exact opposite of what we deserve. See, the amazing thing here is that we deserve condemnation and we get the blessing of God. We deserve to be separated from him because of our sin. And he takes us into his family. We deserve hell and he gives us heaven. We deserve to be left out on our own in our own futility. In our own rebellion. And he brings us to himself and gives us perfect purpose in life. In following after him. It's utter amazing. You see, and that's the thing. Christmas Day, you know as well as I do, children and even adults get bored with their presents by mid-afternoon, if not mid-morning. 
Why is that? It's because we think we got what we deserved. In fact, generally less than what we really deserve. I mean, after all, haven't we been good for goodness sakes? We've been watching out. And we know what we deserve, and we just didn't get all that we should have. And when we got it, it just didn't seem enough. We seem worth more than that. And you get bored with it after, after a very brief, to a very brief time. But if you go back some generations and you talk to people who experienced a Christmas during the Great Depression, you get the sense that whatever they played, whatever they got, that round stone or that wheel or that stick or that lollipop, whatever it happened to be, they made last a long time. Because they knew they really shouldn't have gotten anything at all. Because no one had anything at all. See, gratefulness is when we reflect on what we have, not so much on what we want or what we need, but gratefulness happens when we reflect on what we have and realize we don't deserve it at all. But I've just given you a, a number of words to describe what we've gotten in Jesus. But there's something else that he brings that's indescribable, even more so than justification and adoption and sanctification and purpose and glorification and all of that. See, because what he brings is the very presence of God to us. The indescribable gift that God gives us in Jesus is himself. Uh, that's always true. Do you ever get an anonymous gift? Something comes, it's a present, you open it up. You don't know who it's from. What's your first question? Who gave me this? Why do you ask that? Because you see, with a gift is always the giver. With a gift is always relationship with the giver. In fact, the older you get, the more mature you get, I think, anyway. I don't know that I've come this far yet. The more mature you get, the less important the gift is. The more important is who gave it. And the reason it's more important to know who gave it is because there's a relationship there. You're always asking, who loved me this much? Who loved me to think of me? And when you know the one who gave it, it, it just makes... The, and even when you get bored with the gift, and even when the gift wears out, the fact that that person entered into that relationship with you, there's a sense in which they came to you and they gave you some of themselves in the midst of that gift, in the midst of that present. By the way, kids, this afternoon, or maybe you're already bored with your presents and you're ready to throw them out and you're crying and whining, the reason your parents get so mad at you <laughs> is because... You're rejecting them. Because you're saying, I don't like you, Mom. I don't like you, Dad. Um, because I'm tired of what you've given me. And you have to understand that what they gave you was themselves, not that toy. See? And what God gives to us in Jesus, which is mind-boggling, and inexpressible is himself. He says, here I am. Enjoy me. Know me. Love me. Be embraced by me. See, there are words to describe what we have in Jesus and all this stuff, and it's great. 
It's great to contemplate these words that describe what we have in Jesus, justification, sanctification, adoption, glorification, all those kinds of things. There are no words to describe the very fact that he's given to us himself, God has, in Jesus. Except maybe one. Hallelujah. Hmm. Let me ask you to stand and let's sing together. Thank you.
ask you to bow, please, and pray with me. Father in heaven, it is amazing what you've done for us in our Lord Jesus Christ, not simply by way of saving us, blessing us in that way, but saving us that we might know you. Who can say that they know the Lord? Who can say they have a God who is so close to them that he hears them when they pray, who's with them at all times, who knows them inside and out, and everything about them one by one, and all together even as a group. It is 
inexpressible. But we're grateful, Father, that you've so loved us to give us your Son who gives you to us that we might know you and enjoy you forever. So we thank you. Father, there are those among us, no doubt, who are finding it difficult today. I pray that in a deep and special, real way that you're with them for Katie, Father, for her. I pray for her today. Uh, a day for her back in the hospital. I pray that you would be with her to bring the very light of your countenance to her, your grace to her. Uh, fill her with your presence uh, that she might know that you are with her and that she is safe and secure in you no matter what else is going on in her body. Father, we pray for uh, Lita White, uh, the very same thing, that you would be close to her and with her. Most especially, Father, we pray that you would uh, heal her, eradicate this uh, infection that's in her. And Father, when they check that out on Tuesday, they find nothing there, no infection there at all. That is our heart's desire. God, we pray that you would do that work in her and to heal her. For Diane and Matthew Michaels, as they continue to recover, we pray for them. And for Larry as well, as he leads his family, continue to strengthen and bless him, father, his husband, and father, head of his household. Give him all the tools, all the strength, all the wisdom that he needs uh, to lead in that way. Father, for Sue Demarest and her family, we pray for them as, as uh, Sue has lost her mother this week. We thank you for their relationship and the mom that she was to Sue. Uh, we thank you for godly moms. And uh, we pray your blessing upon Sue and her family and extended family, uh, that they would be grateful to you. And trust in you. Father, we give thanks this morning for Jennifer Furtick's uh, new little baby. And Father, we're grateful for that birth. Uh, uh, that baby came just a touch uh, before anyone expected. And so we pray that you will be gracious to handle all those details uh, of bringing good health uh, and stability and all of that to this little baby. This child would be a blessing to you and its parents and Father, that uh, you would be glorified through this child. Father, we're grateful to be yours. It's amazing that we are. I pray we never lose the excitement of knowing that Jesus has come and in the anticipation that he's coming again and that hallelujah will always be on our lips. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me ask you please to stand for the benediction. As you do, I remind you uh, first that uh, um, we, we do have uh, sweet rolls and coffee available uh, out there. If you guys want to linger and, and have uh, uh, a little Christmas time uh, together this morning, so please uh, do that. Uh, I remind you, too, that the response to the benediction is Christ has come. Christ is coming again. Uh, hallelujah. After you uh, pronounce your response to the benediction, we're going to sing Joy to the World because we just really like singing joy to the world. And so we're going to sing that. And we don't do that often. When I want to sing it in July, we look at each other and say it probably won't work. So we sing it as a bunch at this time of year because I, I just like it. So that's what we're going to do.
Please receive this as God's benediction. Now to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless before his glorious presence and that with great joy. To only wise God and Savior Jesus Christ whom be glory, dominion, majesty and power both now and forevermore. And all God's people said, Christ has come. Christ is coming again. Hallelujah.